0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A major part of President Obama's strategy to cut global warming gases is the Clean Power Plan that pushes states to axe coal-fired electricity. But now the Supreme Court has put that plan on hold.
1: For those states that are still somewhat on the fence, and of course there are a number, this is a signal that basically says you can slow down, uh, you don't have to keep working hard on developing your plans. So. This is an ominous sign, I think, for EPA.
0: Also with Valentine's Day in mind, we look under the waves at nature's way of ensuring a healthy supply of seafood and how it can grab public attention.
2: If you talk about sex, people are curious. And maybe there's a way that you can talk about sex, draw their attention, and then subtly weave in the message of conservation. Because ultimately, successful sex is the heart of sustainability.
0: Sex and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. By a 5-4 to four decision, the U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily put a hold on the implementation of the Obama administration's Clean Power Plan. More than two dozen states, plus some utilities and coal producers, had asked the high court to freeze the operation of the rule. The court's action is seen as a setback for a key part of the Obama administration's climate action plans. This decision likely means the next president will decide how to implement the Clean Power Plan if it does eventually survive the appeals. To unweave this complicated legal web, we turn to Vermont Law School professor Pat Parento. Welcome to the program, Pat.
1: Thanks, Steve.
0: So first of all, what exactly has the Supreme Court done in issuing a stay here?
1: Well, they put a hold on the Clean Power Plan pending a decision first by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which has the case in front of it right now. Then, depending on what happens after the D.C. Circuit issues its ruling, the stay of the rule could remain in effect until the Supreme Court has made a final decision in the case. This assumes that they ultimately will agree to review it, which seems like a reasonable assumption at this point.
0: So what was the basis of issuing this stay pending appeal?
1: Well, it was a one-page order agreed to by five of the justices of the Supreme Court with four dissenters, Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan, Justice Ginsburg, and Justice Sotomayor. But the order itself contains no analysis, no explanation, for why the five members of the court felt like a stay was necessary. And usually in these kinds of cases, you have to show extreme harm and prejudice that's happening immediately for a court to issue a stay. That really isn't the case here. The Clean Power Plan is gonna take many years for it to be implemented. In fact, the very first compliance deadlines under the Clean Power Plan don't kick in until 2022. So this is very unusual what the court has done here.
0: But would some of the states who have objected to this say, look, it may be a while before we have to implement this, but power plants take a long time to construct and deconstruct, and we don't want people putting tremendous amounts of money into making this change if for some reason it's going to get knocked out down the road.
1: Yes, that is the argument, and that probably did influence the justices who agreed to the stay. But of course the response is that a lot of the planning that's currently underway is the kind of planning that states are already engaged in. And in fact, almost all of the states, even the ones that are challenging the plan, are proceeding quite diligently with these plans, given the changes in the energy market that are occurring, given the fact that coal plants are closing down due to market forces, even more so than environmental regulation, due to the fact that renewable energy sources are the fastest growing sources, not only in the United States, but around the world. So... The kind of planning that the Clean Power Plan is requiring is the kind of planning that should be done anyway.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the court action here. There were five votes in favor of this temporary hold. That would include Anthony Kennedy, who voted in favor of finding that the EPA should regulate carbon dioxide as a dangerous pollutant way back when.
1: At this stage of the proceeding The stay is really supposed to be mainly focused on why is it necessary to call a halt to everything right now instead of letting the lower court hear these arguments, which are scheduled to be heard in June. It's not like we have a long time to wait. So it's very unusual that even Justice Kennedy would agree to put a hold to everything, but it certainly is a troubling sign. Obviously, these five members of the court have serious questions about EPA's rule, Perhaps when they hear all of the facts and look at the record and listen to the arguments, they can be persuaded that what EPA is doing is reasonable. But right now, I think the, the betting is that there's some serious obstacles ahead for EPA.
0: What might those be?
1: Well, this is the first time EPA has used this particular authority in the Clean Air Act to address energy planning across the country. And a lot of people see it as an overreach by EPA into areas that are traditionally handled by the states, that is planning for electricity generation. EPA's response is we're using a traditional approach where we set goals and we leave it to the states to decide best how to reach them. It's not all that different than we've done with other pollutants. If you think about lead and gasoline or mercury emissions, the difference of course is we're doing it on a much larger scale because the scale of the climate change problem is so great.
0: So this is a presidential election year. To what extent do you think the High Court's issuance of this uh, stay, of this hold on the Clean Power plant is related to our electoral politics?
1: Well, certainly the presidential candidates on the Republican side of the aisle have all expressed opposition to the Clean Power Plan. You often hear some of the same talking points about how EPA has exceeded its authority and as violating uh, the Clean Air Act and even running afoul of the Constitution. So the stay order, even though it doesn't contain any analysis that actually supports those allegations, the mere fact that the Supreme Court has done this will certainly be a talking point, I think, in the elections on both sides.
0: Now, the Clean Power Plan was cited by the Obama administration in the negotiations at the uh, Paris Climate Summit. So what are the implications of this stay for the Paris Agreement, do you think?
1: I don't think it immediately impacts the commitments that have been made in the Paris Agreement. Most of those commitments have to do with reporting greenhouse gas goals and monitoring those goals to see how they're being achieved. The Paris Agreement reinforces the President's approach to using existing domestic authority
0: now, we've recently talked to some folks that say that there are other clauses in the Clean Air Act, particularly something called Section 115, that would give justification for a U.S. administration to implement an economy-wide program of reducing greenhouse gases, something even more comprehensive than the Clean Power Plan. Your views?
1: Yes. Section 115 has two requirements. One is a finding that emissions in the United States are causing endangerment and damage in other countries. That's not hard to show, given the science of climate change. The second finding that triggers Section 115 is this reciprocity provision, which basically says the United States shouldn't be committing to doing things that other nations aren't prepared to similarly commit to. And that's where the Paris Agreement, I think, becomes absolutely central. We now have, for the first time, 196 nations of the world committing to doing at least something. The agreement gives EPA and gives the United States the opportunity to say, we're getting reciprocal commitments from these other nations to reduce their emissions. And you're right. 115 might be a better approach to the problem.
0: The morning after this Supreme Court order uh, issuing a stay in implementation of the Clean Power Plant, a good day for folks who are in favor of climate action, a bad day?
1: It's a bad day. At a minimum, it's going to send a confusing signal to the states that are working on these plans, to the utilities that are working on these plans. So for those states that are still somewhat on the fence, and of course there are a number, this is a signal that basically says you can slow down, uh, you don't have to keep working hard on developing your plans. That, that's not a good thing, that's delaying progress. We have a short window of time to reduce these emissions before we reach some really dangerous tipping points. On the other hand, as Yogi Berra likes to say, it ain't over till it's over and we still have an opportunity to argue in the D.C. Circuit that the plan is reasonable and take that argument to the Supreme Court. Hopefully, with time and more study, we can convince some of the members of the court that are currently skeptical about this plan that what EPA is doing is legal, lawful, and necessary.
0: Pat Parenteau is a law professor at Vermont Law School. Thanks so much, Pat, for taking the time with us today.
1: You're very welcome, Steve.
0: We'll head beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. Peter's with the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news, that's EHN.org, and joins us on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hey, Peter, what's on deck this week? Well, hi, Steve. Some news from a small liberal arts
4: school. Hampshire College in Massachusetts has pledged to become the first residential college to power itself with 100% solar energy.
0: Yeah, it's a non traditional school, and as I understand it, their football team has never lost a game since Hampshire College opened in 1970.
4: Well, yeah, that's because they don't have a football team. You know, down here in the South, that almost makes you not a college.
0: Yeah, well, hey, just how green is Hampshire?
4: They have a campus-wide sustainability initiative where they've cut water use, they let the grass grow, they have meadows instead of mowed lawns, LED lighting, and they're planning to install thousands of solar panels.
0: How soon is this going to happen? What do they figure it'll cost and or save them?
4: It'll take several years, and one report put the price tag for all this at $11 million. They also have a lot of contributions from sustainability-minded businesses. There's no real firm figure on how much the system will ultimately save the school and its tuition-paying students and parents.
0: And how much is that tuition?
4: Well, the school's website lists tuition, room, and board at just over $60,000 a year.
0: Wow, they're going to take a lot of solar cells to offset that. Right. What's next?
4: Well, I have a different water story from a different city in Michigan than the one we've been hearing about, and it's from my EHN colleague, Brian Benkowski. There are 310 miles of streams in the city of Detroit that have been buried, nearly every natural waterway in the city over the last century. It's a system that never worked right, and engineers are trying to figure out ways to bring those streams back.
0: But there's no illusion that you're actually going back to nature here.
4: No, it's not back to nature for an inner city, but part of the way back is a big improvement.
0: Hmm. Hey, what do you have for us from the history calendar this week?
4: I have Dr. Frank Baxter. He's a really fascinating guy from the 1950s. And like some politicians today who are fond of saying when they're trying to duck a climate change question, Frank Baxter was not a scientist. But there's a book called Sonnets and Sunspots by Eric Niederost recounting how this English literature professor became doctor research in a series of eight highly produced 1950s science documentaries on things like genetics, the human senses, the blood system, and more. Four of those documentaries were directed by Hollywood legend. Frank Capra. They lost money, but they drew millions of network TV viewers and played for a generation of school kids in classrooms.
0: Hmm, Kind of like Bill Nye.
4: Right, like Bill Nye, but to a bigger, wider audience. Uh, The most remarkable thing about Dr. Frank Baxter, he foretold climate change concerns in a meteorology documentary 59 years ago this week. Here's what he said. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste waste products of his civilization. civilization...
5: Due to our release through factories and automobiles every year of more than six billion tons of carbon dioxide, which helps air absorb heat from the sun, our atmosphere seems to be getting warmer. This is bad. Well, it's been calculated a few degrees rise in the Earth's temperature would melt the polar ice caps. And if this happens, An inland sea would fill a good portion of the Mississippi Valley. Tourists in glass-bottomed boats would be viewing the drowned towers of Miami through 150 feet of tropical water.
0: Wow, Frank Baxter was really prescient. I mean, if the ice sheet over Antarctica melts, it would raise the oceans almost 200 feet. That's right, and to me, the moral of the story is this. We need more Frank
4: Baxters if we want more science literacy in our country today.
0: Indeed. Peter Dijkstra's with Environmental Health News at ehn.org and the Daily Climate.org. Thanks Peter, talk to you again soon. Okay, Steve, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website loe.org. This winter, the weather pattern known as El Niño has brought some much-needed rain to the parched California landscape. And even more importantly, the Sierra Nevada mountains have gotten a lot of snow, which, when it melts, should provide water to rivers and reservoirs come summer. The Sierra snowpack makes up about a third of California's water supply. The rest comes from winter storms. And many wonder if the heavy snows from December and January will provide relief from the longstanding drought. Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald
6: investigates. In green wool pants and a red jacket, Frank Gerke skis across a snowy field at the Phillips Station in the Sierra Mountains near Lake Tahoe. Frank's been doing snowpack assessments for the California Department of Water Resources for a long time. Let's
5: see, I started in 81 and then came up here to work for the state in 87, so it's
6: been a while. Frank's carrying a giant metal tube as he skis. He stops in the center of the field and plunges it into the snow. He measures both the depth and the weight of the snow core in order to calculate how much water is in that snowpack.
5: Uh, we're, we're basically taking a core sample of the snow, then we weigh that core. You know, the weight of water is well known, so it turns out that the, the tube is, the geometry of the tube is such that. An ounce of weight represents an inch of water content.
6: A Tahoe local named James E. Church first developed this process way back in 1909.
5: He was a professor of Romance languages, I believe.
6: <laughs> Frank takes measurements at seven different sites throughout the field to account for any variability in the ground surface. He calls out numbers to an assistant with a clipboard.
5: 41, uh, five. Yeah, fifty-four.
6: When they finish with the final site, Frank does some quick math.
5: After all of that sampling, we had a water content of 25.4 inches, and that represents 130% of
6: its um, average since 1966. That's 130% of the average snowpack on this day in history. Now, that's just at this one location. On the day, the snowpack across the state is lower than where we are right now but still above average, and Gerke is pleased. I think it's very encouraging.
5: Um, it's, it's a really good start. We, we do need a, you know much better than just average, and we're getting it now. Hopefully, we, we really increase that percent of average um, as we move on into the spring.
6: The most important test will come in April, when scientists tally up the total snow accumulation for the winter. Last April, California Governor Jerry Brown came to Phillips Station for the year's final snowpack assessment. But there wasn't any snow. Pictures of the governor standing there next to Frank on the bare grass became iconic images of the California drought. It was the worst snow year in Frank's career. But seven of the last ten years have had below-average snowpack, and Frank says that's a huge problem because snow in the mountains provides California with water throughout the year.
5: Well, the, well, the snowpack is the sort of the, the natural reservoir. The snow accumulates up here in the Sierra during the winter and then gradually melts when we hit late spring. And if we don't have a good snowpack, then those reservoirs do not essentially recover from the releases that they had made the previous uh, summer and fall.
6: Back down from the mountains in sunny downtown Oakland, I stopped by the Pacific Institute, a global water think tank. Peter Glick is the director, and he says two good months of snow is an encouraging start to the winter. But it says nothing
7: about what the next couple of months are going to bring. Our our wet season
6: runs through April. And a lot could change between now and then. In February of 2013, the Sierra snowpack was about where it is right now. But the next two months were bone dry, and snow levels ended up well below average for the year. We don't really know what's going to happen in the next couple of months. It is an El Nino
7: year, but El Ninos can be wet for Northern California or they can be dry for Northern California. So it's it's a little bit of a toss of the dice still.
6: As if to illustrate that point, the week following the snowpack assessment was dry and hot, with record temperatures throughout the state. As of recording this, the statewide snowpack has fallen to just 104% of average. Warm weather in February can also cause snow to melt earlier than usual, which is a problem for reservoir operators.
7: If it melts now, early in the season, we can capture some of it in the reservoirs, but we can't capture it all in the reservoirs because we have to reserve space in our reservoirs for future storms in order to protect
6: the state against flooding. So a lot of that water content is lost. No matter what the weather brings between now and April, Peter says Californians shouldn't be thinking that El Nino is gonna pull the state out of its drought. Even if it's
7: a wet year in California, that by itself is not enough to get us out of the drought. Our reservoirs are still really low, our soil moisture is low, our groundwater is overdrafted. We're in a deeper hole than one
6: year is is gonna fill. And state officials agree. Despite the snow, the California Water Resources Control Board recently decided to extend Governor Jerry Brown's emergency water restrictions through October of 2016. Max Gomberg is the climate and conservation manager for the control board based in the state capital, Sacramento. He says since the governor announced the water restrictions last April, Californians in urban areas have cut their water use by 25%.
4: It's, it's really a tremendous achievement. It really shows that people are, are paying attention and care about conserving this precious resource because... 25 percent, that's one in every four drops of water
6: that was used is no longer being used. And water conservation is only going to get more important in the future. Max says that drought is a natural part of the climate in California, but climate change is making it more common and more severe.
4: And and the drought we've experienced over the past four years in in California has been so severe. You know, we've lost 22 million trees. We've had a tremendous amount of, of forest fires. We've had communities run out of water. We've lost 97% of some of our fish species. It's, it's the, the in, impacts have really been devastating.
6: Peter Glick of the Pacific Institute says that with warming temperatures and increased demands on the water supply, California may never really get out of the drought. In
7: a sense, a drought is not having enough water to do what you want. And in that sense, the Western United States, one could argue, is in a permanent drought. We, we no longer have enough water to do everything that everybody wants, at least as inefficiently as we're doing it today. Look, if, if we end April with 140% of normal snowpack, that would be great. But we have permanent water
6: problems in California and in the West. And they require permanent solutions. Peter says it's great that the state is asking people to stop watering their lawns and shorten their showers, but those measures are temporary, behavioral changes.
7: I do think the state should be doing more in terms of permanent improvements in efficiency. We should be providing farmers with financial incentives to move to more efficient irrigation systems or to grow more efficient crops. We should be providing incentives for our cities to find
6: and fix leaks, to replace inefficient washing machines and toilets and showerheads. Increasing efficiency might seem like a small step, but it's the best way to reduce the state's overall water use. We could cut our water use in cities by 20 or 30 percent
7: without affecting our quality of lives. We could cut water use 15 or 20
6: percent in agriculture without cutting the amount of food we grow. And Peter Glick says we should also be getting creative and taking advantage of new supply options, like treated wastewater. That stuff's not a liability, that stuff's an asset. And increasingly, water
7: districts are exploring ways of putting that high-quality treated wastewater to use. Uh, We're using it on outdoor landscaping here. We're using it for
6: cooling power plants. We're using it for all sorts of industrial processes. These sorts of changes aren't glamorous. But if California is going to survive and grow in the changing climate, they're exactly what's needed. For Living on Earth, this is Emmett Fitzgerald in Oakland, California.
0: The fate of the oceans and fisheries are a topic we often cover here at Living on Earth. Today we have another take on the subject from author and coral reef ecologist Mara Hart, co-director of the nonprofit Future of Fish, which works to create a global business model for responsible fishing. And for this week of Valentine's Day, she joins us from a sustainable seafood conference in Malta to discuss her new book and give us her salty take on what happens below the ocean surface. Mara, welcome to Living on Earth.
2: Hi there, thanks for having me. And before
0: we do anything else, please read a passage from your book, uh, page 166.
2: I would love to. Her skin shone in the moonlight, a flash of silver against the dark beach. She knew he wanted her. She could see him desperately fighting his way toward her from amongst the crowd. She positioned herself perfectly, knowing the sight of her bound body, restrained and prostrate in the sand, would make him, would make all of them quiver with excitement. The first to reach her, he feverishly curled himself around her. Others soon joined him, forming their own half-circle embraces. This is what she came here for, what they had all come for.
0: Whew, this sounds kind of hot, Mara. (laughs) But I guess we need to tell people this is not the beginning of your latest romance novel, although it sounds like you have a flair for that sort of thing, because you're talking about your new book, Sex in the Sea, where you document various mating rituals, the courtship tactics and... The sex capades, uh, they sound foreign, but they, in some respects, mirror our own experience as humans. And this passage that you just read us, you're describing what? This is the shore orgy of the grunion?
2: Of the grunion, yes. So these are small silver fish that could fit in the palm of your hand. And they come ashore every spring uh, to do, as you said, a mass orgy on the beach. It's their strategy for reproduction, and it's a really fun spectacle that folks can go down and, and watch anywhere along the Southern California shores uh, into Mexico.
0: So as a marine biologist, I guess, who has this dual career, what compelled you to write this book and this creative writing style you've chosen?
2: So I was at a cocktail party. I was talking to some friends, and we were having one of those conversations where we were lamenting not understanding the opposite sex. So folks were sort of saying, gosh, if just for one day I could be in the body of a guy and just know how they think or what's going through their head, you know. And I made very casually this offhand comment that, oh, I know, if only we could be parrotfish. <laughs> it was like you could hear a needle drop. You know, I was met with these drop jaws and open big wide eyes and everybody sort of was, what are you talking about? And so I said, oh, well, you know, parrotfish, they can change sex. They start life as females, and then they transition into males. So I explained this a little further, how this is really common strategy for reproduction in the ocean. People were still listening. They were still really curious. And I said, well, you know, if you think about it, that makes things really complicated for management because we tend to like to catch the biggest fish. And if you oh, think yeah. about it, if you're catching all the big ones, you're catching all the males. So you might be leaving enough fish in the sea, but if they're all females your reproduction's gonna slow down. And it was about 20 minutes later, I was refilling my wine glass, and I heard someone who I'd been talking to say to somebody else at the party, did you know fish change sex? Isn't that bizarre? And I thought, that's it. If you talk about sex, people are curious, and maybe there's a way that you can talk about sex, draw their attention, and then subtly weave in the message of conservation because ultimately, successful sex is the heart of sustainability.
0: So talk to me about the various dating games Uh, uh, of the deep.
2: So first there's the search, which is how species have to find one another, which in the ocean is a huge challenge. It's the largest living space on the planet. 99% of where animals can live is in the ocean. So you imagine it's hard to find one another. So that's the first challenge. And animals do this in all sorts of different ways, one of which is to do very much like what we do, which is go to the equivalent of a singles bar or a hotspot for sex, Nassau group are a great example. They will travel down along the reefs. They normally live solitary lives, and so they don't tend to interact with each other very much. But right after the full moon, they'll move to the edge of the reef and wait and see when other groupers start passing by. And they gather at the same spot every year at the same time. They will shift their coloration. And change from sort of desert camo pattern, which is very good for ambush predators to kind of jump out on a reef and get prey. And they switch into this more sort of black tie affair where they'll go into a dark black mode or black with a white belly. And these colors sort of signal that they're ready to be friendly and they're ready to engage more intimately. And then they form these giant, beautiful, swirling balls And right at dusk, as soon as that light starts to change, you can see they kind of get a little fired up. They get a little antsy. And very soon after that, females are, they look pregnant. They are swollen with eggs. And the female will rocket out from a group and she'll shoot towards the surface. And the males will will follow her and sort of form this funnel moving upwards in the water column she releases her eggs about, you know, 10 to 20 feet below the surface, and then the males will streak through this cloud of eggs that she's released, and they'll release their sperm. These milky clouds form, and the fish sort of tumble back down in this cascading sort of geyser of fish that erupts and then falls to the sea floor, and then they'll move up a little bit, up the reef, and do the same thing again. So you get these repeated it's almost like Old Faithful full of, of fish that just shoot up, <laughs> explode. Fish geysers. Yeah, fish geysers. <laughs> and um, the, the visibility will go from 100 feet to where you can't even see in front of your face.
0: So this is, uh, if they're Nassau a grouper, they're found off Bermuda?
2: They're found all throughout the Caribbean. But unfortunately, these days, it's really hard to find them. They follow the same cues every year in order for the fish to find one another, it also makes it very easy for fishers to find them. And you have all of the biggest fish clumping together all at the same time in a very predictable schedule every year. It's very easy to overfish them. And so we've seen this happen again and again and again where these spawning aggregations really just get hammered
0: and this phenomenon, of course, allows people who fish to say, well, there are plenty of fish because if exactly. they go to these aggregations. They... It
2: looks, yeah, and the abundances look absolutely huge. You can have the entire breeding population of one island in one location in one aggregation. So if you wipe that out, they're not coming in from anywhere else. And it's really not until you have only a few dozen left that you realize there's no more coming anymore and that's it. That's
0: Mara Hart, author of the book Sex in the Sea, and we'll have more of our conversation just ahead on Living on Earth, so stay tuned. Oh,
2: romantic sponges, they say do it.
3: Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We continue now with ecologist Mara Hart talking about her new book, Sex in the Sea. I asked her about her own specialty, coral reefs.
2: Well, corals are these fantastic animals. They look like little anemones that are trapped in a cup. And they build these little cup houses, and those houses then stitch together into apartment buildings that then stitch together into big city blocks that then build reefs so big we can see them from space.
0: They're the only creature we can see from space, you say?
2: I think so. Yeah, I believe believe that's true. The only ones that build living structures large enough to see from space. But because they build these reefs, they're stuck. They can't move to reproduce. So they reproduce more like what would be almost like a plant system. They release their eggs and sperm into the water column. But the way that they do this is fantastic because you're talking about an animal that has... From our understanding, a pretty basic body plan, no big higher brain at work here, and yet they organize truly the biggest orgy on the planet, and it's perfectly synchronized. You could set your watch to it, and in fact, researchers do every year, and it's like all of a sudden the underwater world turns into a snowstorm, only the snowflakes rise up and are bright pink, so the corals sit at the bottom of the sea— and they release these bundles that are this bright pink sort of coral color and the bundles are the egg and sperm because most of the big corals that make the big reefs are hermaphrodites and these bundles float up through the dark water column and then explode at the surface releasing the egg and sperm and creating this giant slick of coral gametes, the term for eggs and sperm, and it all mixes and mashes at the top. And that's how you get sperm from one individual to mix with an egg of another.
0: Except you said that when you observed this, Mm. that, well, there was something rather familiar about it.
2: (laughs) There was. So this was one of my um, more semi-embarrassing moments because it happened very early in my grad school career. You watch the event, you come up through the surface and you come up through, again, this slick of coral goo, (laughs) and it smells very potent and very familiar of other types of sexual activity that you can sense in other animals, including our own species. So it's uh-huh. um, a little bit funky, and there's sort of this unspoken initiation among people who study coral sex who kind of always look at each other and sort of think, oh, my gosh, this is so weird.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about the various dating games of the deep. Now, why in nature is seduction necessary?
2: Well, think about the resources it takes to Produce an offspring. So, females in particular have to go through a lot of energy to produce these eggs, and in many cases, to raise the young or at least care for the young for a little while. So, they want to be discerning. They want to ensure that they are making an offspring with a male counterpart who has good genes. I
0: have to say that you have a a wonderful section about lobster dating, Mm. mating, and sex.
2: Lobsters are so romantic. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I had
0: no idea.
2: I know. I, you know, um, I didn't either. What happens with lobsters, it starts off a little kinky, and then it gets romantic. So bear with me. I'll, I promise we'll get to the romance. Uh, around mating season is very aggressive. The biggest males, they, they fight, and the largest males gain dominance over the best dens. They go and kind of harass their neighbors, and they literally pee in the front door of their neighbor's dens. And it's like <laughs> it's not; it's quite rude. It's it's literally just to show that he can.
0: This is like the movie Grease, where these guys <laughs> from the other group show up in their big car and they say, "Your car is dented and broken," and yeah. and then after they kick it a few times, put in a few more dents, then they roar. Then they off. roar
6: off,
2: exactly. And so this is all fine and good. It helps the females identify who's the biggest, strongest, which again, for her, is a good thing because that's going to be good for her offspring. However. The best time for both females and males to mate is when the female molts, because female lobsters have this very neat trick whereby they can lose and regain their virginity. So a female lobster has a pouch underneath her tail where she stores sperm from from a male. What this means is right after she molts, she gets a new empty pouch. If she can mate right away, she fills that pouch full and then has more time to fertilize multiple batches before she grows too much and has to molt again. For the male, finding a female who has an empty pouch means he can pour all of his sperm into it and he doesn't have to share that pouch with other male sperm. So that's an advantage for him. However, for the female, when she molts, she is a soft-bodied animal. She can't even stand for the first half an hour. She is extremely vulnerable to being preyed upon or just killed. So what she does is she comes up with a love potion to seduce this male and basically entrance him into becoming a very gentle, very caring, very protective lover. And she does this by peeing in his face. So she creates a stream of urine and every day will go up to his den and spray a little bit of urine in and then she'll run away before he has a chance to be aggressive. She does this for about a week daily little spritzes in his face into his den and after about a week it starts to sort of take hold and he starts to realize oh you know this is a female this is a ripe female this female is ready to do something that i think i would like to engage in when she starts to sense that this her potion has taken hold she will move in with him and for about another week they will cohabitate they will live together she will go hunt he will go hunt and they kind of hang out And then this moment comes where she can feel that her molt is is about to happen and she will walk out in front of him and do what uh, Professor Yalitama calls the knighting process. So the female walks out and turns face to face with the male. And I should have explained, lobsters Their bladders sit below their brains just behind their eyes, so when they spray urine it comes out of these nozzles that are located right on their face under their eyeballs. (laughs) So, by coming face to face with her mate, she can spray him most effectively and directly. <laughs> she sprays him with copious amounts of urine. He sprays her back. This and is then, an,
0: an amazing golden shower. It,
2: one, it I is say. a 100% a golden shower. And he puts his claws down and kind of lowers his head. His big front claws go down into the sand. She lifts herself up on her walking legs and takes one of her claws and literally taps him once. On one shoulder and then across to the other shoulder it really is like a nighting process and Dr. Atema says you know it's pretty clear the signal is don't go away I'm about to molt it's time to get busy and it takes a few hours for the molting process to complete she kind of slips out of her shell she again can't stand at this point The male, all the while, will sort of be near her. Sometimes he will run his antenna over her, sort of stroking her. He will tickle her like light touches with his walking legs, kind of just checking in on her. And again, from the female's perspective, this whole courtship process has brought her to a point where she now has the biggest, toughest male, not only to fertilize her eggs, but to protect her in this stage where she is so vulnerable.
0: So the oceans are changing, Mara. There's pollution, like a lot more nitrogen and uh, temperature regimes are changing, climate change. How is this affecting uh, sex underneath the waves?
2: Well, in many ways, for example, the lobsters that we were speaking about, they have this very elaborate chemical communication (laughs) through their pee, right? And that requires them to be able to smell with a very, uh, very accurate senses, very heightened senses to smelling. And when we put, pollutants in the water, it can mask those chemical signals so that they can't necessarily sense what the signal is. And imagine if if you're that female and you're spraying this pee and you think your potion is taking effect and then find out that the male couldn't smell you and you approach him, it's not going to be a pretty situation, right? The other thing is things like ocean acidification, which is another byproduct of climate change in the ocean where we're actually changing the pH of the water, the acidity. Well, all of the little sensors in the antenna and in tenules, they're highly sensitive to chemistry and they may be damaged or they may be reduced in their capacity in a more acidic ocean. Or it could be that the signals that are being produced, the way the actual molecules in the urine react with seawater will change based on the acidity. It's as if For centuries, lobsters have been writing in English to one another, you know, through their pee. But then all of a sudden, with ocean acidification, the letters are getting scrambled. And a male is receiving a message that he can no longer understand or read.
0: Talk to me about the whales. Now, there'll probably be a giggle among some who are listening to us because they know that whales can have humongous organs. But I'm thinking about whales, right whales, having... Well, kind of group sex.
2: Yes. So, looking at the anatomy of an animal can tell you a lot about the way that animal reproduces, in particular, whether they tend to have many partners or not. Now, in the right whale, they are not the biggest whale. They do not have the biggest penis, but they do have the biggest testicles on earth. Each testes weighs half a ton. That's some
0: cojones, I would say.
2: These are some serious cojones, yes. What it tells us is that it is likely that these males are having to compete with other males internal to the female. So when we see males with these very large packages, it tends to mean that they are dumping copious amounts of sperm into that female. And the reason to do that is to try to flush out the sperm of other males that may be in there, or to push their fellows as far forward as they can. And we knew that lots of group sex was happening. But there's this fantastic, it's actually, they, I believe they caught it on video, but there's definitely wonderful photos where a bunch of research scientists were in their boat. They were tagging whales and somebody saw a female come up to the surface and roll onto her back. And a researcher named Dr. Philip Clapham, who's with um, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, <laughs> tells it that... You know, it wasn't that uncommon that you would go and you'd see a female come up and roll and then a male, giant pink phallus comes out of the water and will enter into her. But what happened this time was one male came up on one side and they all saw, someone yelled out, oh, penis, insertion is happening. And everyone, okay. And then somebody went, holy smokes, there's another one. And they turn around and it's like two giant bowed penises. I mean, and these things are... Six feet long? I mean, they're, they're, these are big, they're big. palaces <laughs> coming up, arching out of the water and entering into the female simultaneously. So we always knew that right whales were frisky and that there was some sperm competition going on. But if anything is going to encourage the production of gigantic testes, it's going to be having to ejaculate at the same time as another male is in the female at once.
0: Gives new meaning to the phrase a whale of a time. Oh, my goodness, yes. So now this brings us to one of the most scientifically provocative parts of your book, and that is (laughs) probing the scientific mysteries of the vagina. This part of the anatomy which, you know, science, given that guys are guys, you know, tended to pay attention to what you can see rather than what you can't see.
2: (laughs) This is true, and it's wonderful because we're at a point now where there is growing recognition of the importance of the female body and anatomy and, influencing, and behavior in influencing the outcome of reproduction. For a long time, females were thought of as sort of the passive receivers of sperm <laughs> and that was really it, especially once sex had happened. So for internal fertilizers, it was thought that once a male gained access to a female and deposited his sperm, again, there might be some sperm competition going on, but the female really had no control. And a researcher named Dr. Sarah Mesnick, who works out of Southwest Fisheries Science Center in San Diego, has been a fantastic mentor in, in walking me through this marvelous world of whale vaginas in particular. What they found is rather than thinking of a whale vagina as a single tube leading into, you know, for example, a uterus, it's actually like a maze. They find twists and turns and blind alleys and false flaps and trap doors. And I remember Sarah saying to me, when we first looked in this thing, all I could think of was how the heck does a sperm find his way to the cervix? How do they even know where to go? Again, as Sarah says, you know, that last, quote unquote, that last mile, <laughs> <laughs> it's female territory. They've, they're It's their home turf. <laughs> so they're controlling a lot more than we realized.
0: Talk to me about sex change. You say that fish like the blue goby and clownfish can go both ways.
2: Yeah, so sex change is a really common strategy in the ocean. Oysters do it, shrimp do it, many, many different fish do it. And what it does is it works really well to help maximize the amount of babies you can make. So In systems where males can dominate females, but they need to be big to do so, it makes sense when you're small and a little bit less aggressive to be a female, you can reproduce as a female, and then once you've grown big and strong and gained some ability to be a dominant male, you switch into that male role, and you can take over a harem, you can defend a territory, and then you can mate with tons of females and keep your reproductive efforts at a max. In other systems, it makes sense to actually go the opposite direction. So for example, for some species like a clownfish who get together and stay in relatively monogamous pairs inside their little anemone home, there's a male and a female, it makes sense that you would want to start as a male, hook up with a big female. You're a small male, you can still mate. But then when your bigger female mate you know, passes on, you can take on the big female role grow into being a large female and take a smaller male along with you a smaller male has enough sperm to fertilize all the eggs a big female can produce what's really crazy when you think about it is i don't think any of us would choose to go through puberty twice (laughs) right i mean let's not do that but for these fish it's really effective it's also again really important for management because when you have a sex-changing species You have to be managing not only the number of fish that are there, but you have to make sure you're monitoring the sex ratio. And when we start pulling these fish out, we're triggering them to change sex, perhaps when they might not otherwise. And this can have huge consequences for the amount of reproduction and the success of reproduction.
0: Mara, before you go, if you were to come back as a sea creature... Based on your studies of of, of oh, under dear. underwater <laughs> erotica, which creature would you choose to be?
2: Mm-hmm. Man, that is such a loaded question. <laughs> oh, uh, who would I be? I think that the corals really create a magical spectacle. Coral sex is almost like being a musician who gets to play in this incredible orchestra, and all year long, you're you're practicing your part right? You're the violinist or the cellist or, and you're practicing your part and just making sure that you have every note perfect and everything is ready to go. And then you have this one grand night, you know, under the full moon in the tropics and you all come together and you play the piece and it crescendos and everything takes off at once. To me, that's a that would be a pretty cool Yeah, a very cool way to reproduce and sort of send off the next generation in this beautiful, ethereal group activity that that requires a lot of coordination, but you don't have to get too dirty (laughs) or too messy. So once a year with passion. Once a year with passion, and then everybody leaves you alone. You can go back to doing what you want to do. (laughs)
0: Mara Hart's new book is called... Sex in the Sea, our intimate connection with sex-changing fish, romantic lobsters, kinky squid, and other salty erotica of the deep. Thank you so much, Dr. Hart, for taking the time with us today.
2: Oh, Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Oysters down in oyster bed,
1: do it. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Mama, let's fall in love.
0: Next time on Living on Earth, since the wind always blows somewhere in America, weather experts say renewables could provide almost all our power.
1: If we want to preserve the future, this gives us an option to have low-carbon and low-cost energy economy, and we think that's a pretty valuable possibility.
0: We just need to upgrade the electric grid. That's next time on Living on Earth. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, Peter Boucher, Jamie Kaiser, John Duff, Amber Rodriguez, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth.
3: and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Also from SolarCity, America's solar power provider. SolarCity is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI.